The first and most important thing to understand about the contents of the coaching sessions itself, the, co the case coaching sessions, is that no one candidate follows the same sessions. So, you know, we have a lot of discussions with candidates where they'll tell me, Michael, can you tell me what is going to be the general layout of the program? And I say, well, the only general layout I can give you is that there's going to be about 12 sessions. But I actually have no idea what's going to go into those 12 sessions because I don't know how you're going to perform. For example, if you do really, really badly in session five, what I had planned for session six has to change. I mean, if the program is not changing to cater for your needs, then there's a problem with the program, right? So I think that's the most important thing to understand here. But beyond that, I am going to talk about the structuring of the program in some detail so you can understand what happens in some of the sessions and how the program is designed and why it is designed that way. So I think that at the highest level, there are some principles around which the program is structured that you need to understand. The first one is the concept of first principles. When we teach clients to solve cases, we teach them to solve problems from first principles. That means we don't want you to memorize frameworks. Now, a lot of candidates go through other learning techniques and they tell me they're not memorizing frameworks. But then when I ask them to solve a case, they're using the same technique or one of two techniques or one of 12 techniques in every single case. That is using a framework. What you don't want to do is just introduce a framework. You don't know why you're introducing it or you don't have a good way of introducing it. And your reason for introducing the framework is because you've seen it before or that it makes a lot of sense to you, but you can't explain the sense to me. That's how I know when someone has memorized a framework or is using a framework. Now, the reason why solving cases on first principles are so important is for two reasons. Firstly, if you cannot remember the framework, you cannot solve the case. right? So now what we're doing for you is we're teaching you to solve a problem from first principle. First principle means we teach you to design a framework rather than memorize framework. If we're teaching you to design a framework in every single case, that and to design a framework it's called brainstorming, by the way. If we teach you to design a framework in every single case, you'll never have to memorize a framework for the rest of your life because you can design these very unique frameworks that are specific to every single case. And our candidates do get a lot of positive feedback from interviewers. That the frameworks that they use are very unusual, but very specific, very messy, very comprehensive for the case. And we don't teach them the frameworks. I mean, I don't spend any time teaching them frameworks, but I teach them how to develop the frameworks, right? So that's the first reason why, you know, attacking uh, things from, from first principles are just, you know, fundamentally so important. But there is a second reason as well. When you tackle things from first principles, you understand the logic of how to solve something. Now, here's a, another nice secret that most people don't tell you, but you can figure it out yourself if you pay enough attention to this. 50% of McKinsey cases cannot be solved with frameworks. I will listen to that phrase again. 50% percentage symbol of McKinsey cases cannot be solved with the framework. They are known as what we call inference or logic cases, whereby it's a case, it's a full case, a lot of information is given to you, but if you try to slap on a framework to that, the individual is going to look at you and say, okay, that's nice, but tell me what you think is happening. And because you're trained to just throw in a framework, when he says, tell me what you think is happening, you keep on throwing in a framework there, right? It's not going to work, right? You can listen to how myself and Kevin have done some of these cases with the candidates and in the in the podcast section, and, and you can get a feel for how... I don't want to use the word ridiculous, but how awkward it sounds when Kevin or myself are asking for a candidate to um, 
present the logic, but the candidate only wants to present the framework because the candidate doesn't know how to do a logic case. So, first rule, solving from first principles, never have to memorize frameworks, and it really prepares you for solving McKinsey cases where frameworks are not needed. We do have a second principle, which for me is a very important principle. It's the principle of demonstrated competency. The principle of demonstrated competency means that unless you actually demonstrate a competency in the coaching program, I will assume you don't have the competency. Now, it's a very interesting principle we follow because what happens is that a lot of candidates will come to me and say, Michael, sorry I made the mistake in the coaching program, but I know I can do it in a real case, so let's move on. And I'll say, okay, you may think that, and I, and I really like you, but I can't believe that because unless I can see you demonstrating that, you now want me to move ahead with the program and build some more complex training upon your base of skills, not having seen that you can master the fundamentals. Now, what do you think happens if you build a strong structure on a weak foundation? It eventually collapses, right? So the principle of demonstrated competency means that unless I can visibly see you applying a skill we've taught, we automatically assume you don't have it. Now, the nice thing about that, it means that we constantly go back and test it and try to find different ways to bring it out until I see you have the ability to bring it out. Now for a lot of candidates, that's very unusual because what happens when you do most training is that the interviewer gives you some feedback and it's then your job to go out and fix it. Now with us, yes, it is your job to go out and fix it, but we don't make the assumption you are fixing it. If you did something in session, let's say two, that didn't go well and I thought it was an important uh, skill you need to develop, I will come back in sessions four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve to see if you have that skill. And if you don't have it, I'll keep on putting pressure on you to figure out why you are not fixing it. Don't I? Have you forgotten this is a skill you need to fix? Do you not know how to fix it? Do you understand the feedback I'm giving to you? It's a very pedantic way of teaching, but it ensures that no stone is left unturned. There's nothing in there that, you know, I am going to um, just ignore or forget about. I don't forget about anything. People who've worked with me know that I have a pretty detailed file on each of you and I go back to the most basic stuff all the time and say in session four you did this, in session three you did this. Why did you do it? Let, let, let's move forward, right? Or let's think about how we can move forward if you don't have the skill. You know, how do we teach you more but still ensure that we come back and build out this foundation? You have to build the foundation. The, the third pillar on which we teach, and it's probably the most fundamental pillar, is we teach ethics. Now, ethics is widely misunderstood, right? We are a values-based organization, first and foremost. You can see every video firms consulting has, every message we deliver is about ethics. We've got, you know, we, for those of you who have public access to our mentors' videos like Kevin Coyne, that entire video is about values. For those of you who have access to some of our other mentors' videos in the private, you know, memberships-only section, same thing. We don't discuss uh, what it was like to serve as head of BCG strategy practice in the uh, you know, uh, late 90s for some of our mentors and so on. No, we talk about the values and ethics of being a partner, you know, the greater good that we serve, the, 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 the pain we take to not cross the line, sometimes when we don't know we are crossing the line. Ethics is very fun foundational to the way we teach. Our philosophy is that if we can drill in the principles of ethics into you to make the right decisions, then we have succeeded. In fact, uh, sometimes with candidates who don't get in, about you know 35 don't get into uh, McKinsey and so on, 35%, sorry, if they've picked up the principles of ethics and values, I know that wherever they go, they will be very successful because they will because they understand that integrity is your greatest asset. 
There's a cost to integrity, right? Think of integrity like your credit rating. The less integrity you have, the more you'll have to spend. It's it's just it's exactly like a credit rating. You have a poor credit rating, you go to buy something on credit or buy a house and mortgage, they, they tack on a higher interest rate. It's the same thing with integrity. The less integrity you have, the more you'll have to spend to get things done. And, and I always point out to people that firms consulting drives itself on what I would call one of the most aggressive policies of ethics and values. We walk away from anything that, I wouldn't say it doesn't look right because we don't judge people, but we do talk to them. It's not whether it doesn't look right, if it's whether it's wrong. If someone wants us to do something that we think is unethical, we just won't do it. You know, we recently had a fairly, you know, established publication company contact us who liked the changes we're making to our website. They previewed it because one of the heads of strategy is a former McKinsey partner who knew us and served as an advisor for the changes we made and they really liked what they saw and they said, you know, would we get into a partnership whereby they could put some of their material on our website, brand it, and you know, it would drive traffic to some of the books they were selling and, and I was not happy with that because basically we are endorsing their material for a fee. We're not endorsing the material because we like the material and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to hand this to our hand-picked clients because it's the best material out there. No, we're handing this to our clients because it is something that is going to gain us money. That's wrong. So we still maintain a very good relationship with the head of strategy in that company, but we've decided not to pursue that deal. We may engage with them on other basis, but definitely not to to endorse something that we personally are gaining from it because that is wrong that is that is not in our clients interest right now there's some other core principles we follow here and they're very important that we use something called the layered approach the layered approach is very simple when most people practice cases i'm going to say 99% to 100% of you will go out there download case books from case from mba schools and just start practicing the cases now the principle here is that it's like studying math. You can't study from dif- you cannot learn math by studying difficult calculus on the first day you start learning math as a five-year-old. You cannot do that. You have to start with basic books showing you a cow and a pig, two cows plus two pigs equals four farm animals. That's where you start, right? People may laugh at you, but that's where you got to start learning math. You can't avoid that, right? Unless you're a you know prodigy from Russia or China and you just pick up math because your parents were you know exceptional. The point is you have to you know, learn things step by step. Even if you're a prodigy, you have to learn things step by step. Now, that's the way we teach. We don't start you off with the most complex things because if you, start, if you open a book on calculus and you're five years old, and let's say you're an average child like me, right? You look at a book on calculus, you want to cry, right? You want to go watch Teletubbies after five minutes because those things look so scary. And that's the way we teach. We're not going to start you with the most difficult things. We're going to start you with the most basic things and then layer on difficulty. So one layer of easiness, then the next set of cases will be slightly more difficult, the next set of cases slightly more difficult, and so on and so on, until we build you up to the point whereby you are doing more and more cases. Now, the final principle on which we teach... I would say maybe, yeah, I would say maybe it's the final principle. It could be one more, but it's maybe a sort of a sub-principle. But the final major principle is what we call the cumulative learning technique. Now, the cumulative learning technique, Grant, is not something we do with all candidates because it is something that is very draining for candidates. I would say that it is something that can, can, can cause candidates to suffer from burnout if we do too much of it. Now, the, the cumulative learning process is what the word says. It's, it's an accumulative process, which means that let's assume that in session one, we did one type of case we'll call A. 
Session 2, we did another type of case we call B. Session 3, we did another type of case we call C. And Session 4, we did one type of case we call D. We've done four types of cases. Now, in the cumulative learning technique, assuming a candidate can match the pace, because not everyone can match the case. Okay, not everyone can match the pace of the cases. In Session 1, we'll do one type of case A. In Session 2, we will accumulate the training and we'll do two cases, A and B type case. In session three, we'll do an A, B, C type case, three cases. In session four, we'll do an A, B, C, D type case, four cases. Now, what's good about this is that it leaves nothing to chance, right? We are not relying on you to ensure that you remembered what we taught you in session one and two. We are testing it in session in every session. Now the problem with the cumulative learning process is that it puts a lot of strain on a candidate, right? It only works if the candidate is well prepared. The candidate must do their homework and be well prepared because if a candidate is not well prepared and forgets things repeatedly, you're not going to be able to do four cases in one session because one case takes about 30 minutes. For us to do four cases in one session means a candidate has to know most of the material and move through the cases at about 15 minutes per case. Some candidates handle it very well and I would say when candidates get to the point where we can do the when we can apply the cumulative learning process, I would say they are doing very well. Now I wouldn't worry if you're not if you don't have the cumulative learning process applied to you, it's not like you're failing. Some candidates don't have it applied to them and do very well. And I would say that it is a very, um, what's the word, it's an abrasive system because it is tough. Every session is very intense, very tough. We, it also moves us then to what we call the sub-principle of drills. We tend to do a lot of this towards the end of your training, in you know, sessions 9, 10, 11, 12. And at that point, sometimes we're doing seven types of cases per session with candidates. And when you're doing seven types of cases per session with a candidate, you're basically doing drills. You don't finish the case. As soon as you can see they know what they're doing in the case, you move to the next case. Now, we do a lot of drills. Um, we've introduced a lot of data drills. And you can see the way we test data is very, very different from the way other candidates and other programs are testing data. We expect you to be able to read graphs by itself irrespective of the context of the graph. We expect you to generate hypotheses just from graphs itself. And I'll be honest, most people are bad at reading graphs, but we've introduced, we've made a lot of changes to the program to make graph reading a very central component. Now, again, we only get to the graph reading if you can do the other stuff well. You know, as I mentioned in another podcast, there's something called the trade-off. If you're going very slow in learning the material, we have to make the decision whether to go at your pace, which means we can't cover some stuff because we're going to take longer to cover material and we only have 12 sessions, or we just go through all of it even if we're not ready. Now, there's no right answer here. Some candidates will go through it at the pace they want, and when they get to the end, they are worried that they haven't finished everything. But of course, we, we match their pace. Other candidates, we don't match their pace and we try to cover everything in the 12 sessions and they get upset that we didn't match their pace. But there's no, but you, you can't have both. You have to be a candidate who prepares well, which comes to my next point. Now let's get into the detail of what happens in each session, right? Because, you know, that's what I think people want to know here. Now a couple of things before we get into that. The first one is that we make the assumption that you have prepared well. I mean, I would strongly encourage candidates to get access to the media library of 90 videos or so on and get hold of the consulting offer. Now, if you watch those and you prepare well, you can use the training with us to expand your knowledge rather than teaching you the basics. We, we would want candidates to learn the basics on the videos. That's why we developed the videos because while we can teach you the basics in the in the actual coaching session, what is the point of having a former partner teaching you the basics when you can use a former partner 
to be teaching you the more complex stuff. Now, you've seen that with Kevin as well. You know, some of the podcasts we've made available with permission of clients, you know, some of the candidates go into the sessions with uh, Kevin and they're not ready. And you've got Kevin Coyne, the former head of, worldwide head of strategy for McKinsey, teaching them the most basic, basic stuff, right? And I don't think, the, I mean, I'm, he's a nice guy. He's obviously an outstanding teacher, mentor, and, you know, professional. You know, the man who's interviewed 25 Fortune 500 CEOs and mentored 25 Fortune, 25 Fortune 500 CEOs. The point is that, you could have done more for those candidates. And that's what we want candidates to do. So be a good student and prepare well before the actual session start. Now, we have 12 sessions. Let's talk about what happens here. I would say approximately six of them, well, I would say exactly five of them, but let's say approximately six of them, are what I call foundational sessions. And the other six are not foundational sessions. They are completely aligned to the problems the client faces. Now, what's a foundational session? A foundational session is a session in which we teach you some of the core skills you will need to solve cases in the future. Now, there are many candidates who will come into the program and say, hey, I spoke to McKinsey. They're not going to ask us market sizing questions, so let's not do estimations. And then I pointed to them, okay, two things here. Market sizing is one type of estimation. There are, uh, estimation is a whole family of kind of mathematical uh, questions. We start off with estimation questions. Firstly, because while McKinsey may never ask you a standalone market sizing question, they may ask you a market sizing question within a full case. They may ask you another type of estimation question within a full case, like a supply side equation. They may ask you an operations estimation question within a full case. Now, 99% of candidates were groomed by all these horrible case books and you know books in the market to assume that market estimation questions were estimation questions. They're not the same thing. Estimation questions are only 25% of estimation questions. There are subcategory of estimation questions. So we always start off with estimation questions, we call them math questions as well, to get candidates comfortable with learning how to simply break down and structure things in a very logical format. And it also teaches you another principle here, the importance of the way you lay out a problem to increase the probability of you communicating it correctly and getting the right answer. By far, most candidates struggle, not with the math, because they tend to be quite good at that, but they struggle with the fact that they don't know how to lay out the map, the, sort of the math in such a way that they're able to talk through what is happening while they're doing the calculations. They're able to split out the assumptions. And also, this is the big problem when you do math questions in a case. It's almost always going to be the, the situation where the interviewer asks you to go back and change some assumptions and redo the calculations. Now, if you haven't learned how to write that out very well, you're not going to be able to go back and change anything because it wasn't written in such a way where you could manipulate the equation. So estimation questions are the foundation. We always start with estimation questions. There have been rare situations, I would think maybe six times ever, where we've ignored that and it's always hurt us. And the candidates never got in. I mean, you can listen to Alex's um, uh, recordings, uh, which will be going up soon. Uh, a candidate that we placed at, um, um, uh, we tried to place at uh, McKinsey and Bain in Moscow. It didn't work, but I think there we kind of rushed the sessions. We had no choice. We told him it's going to be a five-day crash course. We no longer we don't normally do that, but we're going to see if we can do that. And we we we've never done it before, so it's an experimental program there, right? We don't encourage that. But when you when you're speeding through things with candidates on short 
on, on a short notice, what happens is candidates tend to focus on the big things like cases, but they tend they spend less time focusing on the fundamental techniques and tools that help them solve cases. So estimation is the first thing, foundational. We teach you how to do supply-side cases, demand-side cases, top-down cases, bottom-up cases. Non-market-based cases we don't teach because they're no longer used by McKinsey, Bain and BCG. They still remain popular at Booz, AT Kearney, Deloitte and so on, but because we don't actually serve those markets, we no longer teach them. But um, most candidates know how to do demand-side cases and the other four, supply-side, top-down, bottom-up, they won't know how to do it. And uh, supply-side and demand-side cases are mutually exclusive, but you can do a demand-side case that's top-down or bottom-up, and you can do a supply-side case that's top-down or bottom-up, although most supply-side cases tend to be bottom-up and most demand-side cases tend to be top-down. Now, there are also supply-side cases that cannot be done from the supply-side. It's, it's actually impossible to do it. So there we teach you how to do it from the demand-side and put in a slight conversion factor to make it a supply-side case. On the same basis, there are some demand-side cases that cannot be done from the demand-side. We'll teach you to do it from the um, supply side and put in a demand side converter. Now an example of a supply side case that it cannot be done from the supply side and needs to be done from the demand side with a supply side converter is when I ask someone to estimate the number of Ferraris in Singapore that are delivered per year in Singapore. Everyone does it as a demand side case, right? But that is actually a supply side case that cannot be done from the supply side. So you need to do it from the demand side, but then put in the supply side converter. If you just do it as a straight demand side case, you'll get the answer wrong. Unless you have very strong business judgment, it can make good guesses, right? Now, that's a supply side case that cannot be done from the supply side. There are demand side cases that are best not done from the demand side. Now, I always ask people to estimate the number of um, um, bagels served at Starbucks, at a single Starbucks store in a summer morning. That is a demand side case, obviously, right? It's driven by demand, it's a consumer product. But it cannot be done from the demand side because if you did it from a demand side, you'll get such a big number, it wouldn't make any sense. So we'll teach you how to, to identify a demand side case that must be done from the supply side with a demand side converter, right? And then an example of a supply-side case is something like estimating the number of visas that were issued by the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. And in that situation, demand exceeds supply. And if demand exceeds supply, the limiting factor is supply. And therefore, you solve this on the supply side. Now, obviously, I don't want to give you all of the tips and tricks yet. It's, it's too many to solve estimation cases, but it's very easy when you see how we do it, especially you know, if you have access to the consulting offer and you can see how it's done there. So that's step one. Step two is brainstorming, the pivot of management consulting, the pillar on which everything rests. You're never going to find any brainstorming advice on the internet. I'll tell you that right now because most people don't teach brainstorming. We have a pretty clever technique to teach brainstorming and everything we do sits on that, right? It's basically a four or five step process and we expect you to we expect to drill that into you throughout the sessions. Now, it's not difficult to do brainstorming, but it is something you have to practice, right? So a lot of candidates don't practice it. They're not sure how to practice it. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they're not able to recognize the technique, which is four steps. It's kind of easy to recognize and then methodically apply that technique. I would say brainstorming is one of the things you have to practice. It's a, it's a bit of a painful process of learning it, but it must be done. Step two, brainstorming. Step two is brainstorming and session two is brainstorming. So we will do some estimation cases in session two as well because of our you know, um, cumulative process of covering everything. Now, once you've done step 
sessions one and two, we've covered estimating and brainstorming, two foundational concepts, right? Now, sessions three, four, and five, we'll move to cases. In session three, we'll do BCG-led, we'll do the BCG-style cases where you can use issues or issue trees to flesh out what's happening in the case, right? No problem there. Issue trees are very basic ways to do cases. You can actually pass a BCG case by using that technique. Hell, you could even pass a McKinsey case by using that technique, right? But it all depends on the interviewer. Because even a BCG interviewer may put pressure on you to exp to develop an hypothesis for the issue identified. I can tell you right now, McKinsey interviewer is definitely going to put pressure on you to identify an hypothesis for the issue that you, you know sketched out in that decision tree. But the reason we start with decision trees is, be is because it forces candidates to think very logically, break down issues, learn how to prioritize issues. And if you think about this very carefully, an issue tree is basically a very big brainstorm. So you can see the logic. We start off with estimation questions, which are basic logic. We then move to brainstorming, which is basically an issue tree with a few branches. We then move to BCG cases, which is a big issue tree, which is basically a big brainstorm, right? Now, most candidates, if they struggle with session three, it's because they haven't really watched the videos or paid attention. It's not easy to follow this, right? It's a very simple set of processes. You just got to pay attention and replicate them. I would say that issue tree-based methods to solve cases are very easy. I do them a lot when I solve cases. Sometimes I do hypotheses, but usually I build my hypotheses on top of my decision trees, right? Now, you can solve cases. You can do all of your cases at McKinsey, Bain, BCG with issue trees and layering hypotheses on them. We'll teach you how to do that. But it's not enough because 50% of McKinsey cases cannot be solved with an issue tree or with hypotheses. So in session four, we're going to introduce you to the first type of McKinsey case, which is McKinsey cases where you cannot use solve it with a framework. A framework is not going to work, right? We're going to have to teach you how to do a kind of Sherlock Holmes kind of approach here of inferring what is happening from the clues presented to you. A logic case goes something like this. An interviewer will give you some information and say, okay, Michael, tell me what you can infer is happening in this, for this, uh, at this client and what you think is the most important thing we should focus on. Now, what you need to do there is not repeat all of the facts. What candidates do when they hear the words infer what you can think is happening, they just repeat all of the facts given to them. That's not inferring anything. That's repeating the facts. You've got to pull the facts together and tell the interviewer something new that you can deduce or infer from the facts. And when the interviewer tells, says, tell me the most important thing you think we need to focus on, they were looking for your most important hypothesis, right? You have to learn this technique from McKinsey. And we, we do teach this technique very carefully because it's an important technique. And it's not something you're going to find in any case books because case books are not designed for this communicational style. Or any book is designed for this communicational style of teaching. They're not going to teach you how to learn from communication, right? So I think you need to be aware of that. Once we then finish that, we'll go to session five where we'll teach you how to develop hypotheses for McKinsey case. And there we'll teach you how to build hypotheses just from the data given to you in a case. Or we'll teach you how to build hypotheses from decision trees. I, either are going to work. It doesn't really matter. We'll also then you know, reinforce the idea of how you build hypotheses from logic cases. Now, sessions one, two, three, four, and five are mandatory. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter even if you are a McKinsey consultant in the, I don't know, Johannesburg office trying to move to London and you need help preparing for your case interviews because you left the firm two years ago. We assume nothing 
and we will teach you everything, right? So the first five sessions are completely mandatory. Now what happens in the next seven sessions are completely dependent upon you. If we think you are struggling with, let's say, the McKinsey uh, logic cases where no hypotheses are used, and obviously we're going to spend more time on that, right? We'll maybe spend session six on that, session seven on that. If we think you are struggling with communication, I would say most candidates struggle with communication. Maybe 95% have communication problems. Then when we're doing a McKinsey non-framework-based case, we'll focus very heavily on teaching you techniques to improve your communication. Now, I cannot list every single communication technique that we're going to focus on because every candidate is different. So and if you listen to this podcast and expecting me to li give you a laundry list of communication techniques, we're not going to do that. Firstly, because a lot of the techniques are proprietary. That's why we ask all candidates to sign a non-disclosure agreement with us. It's a standard rule of operating with firms consulting. It's a non-waivable. You cannot waive that non-disclosure agreement for any reason whatsoever. That's why not, no one writes about the way we teach them because we don't allow them to disclose the methods we use, right? Now, communication is very important, right? And communication is about the way you sound when you say things and what you choose to say. And I think for both for most candidates, about the content of what you say and it's the way you deliver it. And it's about building a positive relationship with the interviewer. I'll put it in simple in English, right? You want the interviewer to, interv to enjoy the case. At the end of the case, the interviewer must say, wow, I really enjoyed that. That was one of the best experience I've ever had. I mean, even if the guy didn't do very well, I think that this comes to him naturally. I can imagine how much fun he's going to make this for a client. I think that we should give him another chance. And I've seen people who do badly in case and are brought back because they are so much fun to talk to, and which is why we place so much emphasis on communication. Now, there are certain other things we do. We have something called the midpoint decision. Now, the midpoint decision we normally have after session six, and it's a, it's a pretty, I would say, important call. Now, after session six is done, you're at the midpoint of your training, right? We do the following thing. We will tell you, okay, We'll have a call with you if you think it's necessary. Sometimes we don't have a, uh, you know, a special midpoint discussion with you because we think it's not necessary. It's not going to help. But if we think that this is important to you, we'll have a midpoint call. Now, the midpoint call is important, so you want to pay attention to this. Right? The midpoint call does the following. It gives you a chance to know how you're doing in the program in no uncertain terms. Because typically what happens is that in the training program, let's assume we're in session one. If I tell you you're doing well, I'm only referring to what you did well in session one. If you're in session five and you do badly, I'll say you did badly, but I'm referring to what you did in session five. As well, as your coach, while I have your entire file laid out in front of me so I can see what you did in session one, two, three, four, and five, and so on, in the middle of a case, I cannot be focusing on that because it distracts me from paying attention to what you're doing. So I'm not actually building a picture of your overall performance. And what I want to do is, I do want to sit down with you and, and look at how you've done over the arc of your performance over six sessions, right? Now, I need an opportunity to do that. And I cannot do that in your sessions because it then distracts me from your actual case performance. Beyond that, I also want you to know in no uncertain terms how you are doing. You know, I really hate it when people say everything is going fine, but it's not going fine. Also, what does going fine mean? If you're, if you, the person with whom you are practicing says, "Hey, you're doing fine in cases," what does that mean? You're not going to embarrass yourself. You're going to pass the first round. You're going to get the offer. So, fine is very subjective. We're going to bring some objectivity into this. So, what happens in session six is I will sit down with the candidate and I'll say, "Okay." 
this is how you have done in the first six sessions. If you continue at this, now if you did, if you interviewed right now, would you get an offer or not? Right? That's the first question I ask for them. I answer for them. So it's, it's not as if you're doing well, everything's going well. I'm going to give it to them in a pretty straight language that if you interviewed today after six sessions, you're not going to get the offer. And to be honest, most people are not going to get the offer after six sessions, although some do. You know, we've had some of our fellows and so on, you know, some of the more uh, aggressive candidates get offers after only four sessions. So I think that you know, you've got to be very, very careful with, with thinking that it can't be done in six sessions. It can be done in two sessions if you watch the videos very carefully, right? So the first question I answer is, will you get an offer after this session? Session six is over. Can you get an offer if you're interviewed now? That's the first question. The second question I answer is that if you continued at your current trajectory, if you continued at your current pace, so let's assume according to what I can see, you improve about 5% per session. If I project where you will be at session 12, and we're fairly accurate, will you get an offer or not? And I'll list the reasons why I think you're not going to get the offer. Now, why this is important is that it, we want to give ownership of preparation to candidates. We don't want to tell a candidate everything is going well and only tell them in session 12, you know what, it's an epic disaster you're not going to get in. It's too late for them to fix things. And that's the worst thing about terrible coaching, you know. You give candidates too little accountability and space to control their destiny. So what we're doing at the end of session 6, if we think it is useful to you, we will give you this feedback so that if you want to continue at your same rate and you're doing very well, you can do that. If, you, if we're telling you you're not going to get in at your current pace, you can improve your pace of preparation. And if you think you're doing too well based on our feedback, you can also reduce your amount of preparation. Now, we don't give this to every candidate because for a couple of reasons. Candidate, some candidates cannot handle it. So a candidate always, candidates always want feedback, but that doesn't mean they're equipped to handle the feedback. So we make a judgment call here. If we think that the candidate is not going to use the feedback, well, we won't give it to them. If we think the candidate is going to harm their chances, for example, some candidates are emotional. They take things very, very serious, and they're not sure how to process the feedback. We won't give it to them right? If we think a candidate is really trying their best and they're an aspirational candidate, and an aspirational candidate, we treat them very differently, more with kids' gloves. We think they're very good. Um, they just need to be gently moved along. We generally don't follow this format, right? But for most of the candidates, we'll follow this format. Now, the midpoint feedback will cover six areas. One, communication. And within communication, we'll cover six areas as well. Are you using the library of techniques we've taught you? Do you remember the library of techniques we've taught you? Are you using them? Are you trying to use them? A library of techniques to teach you certain communication techniques. Are you, do, you, do, you, do you know them? Are you using them? The second thing. Third thing is, are you using them correctly? Fourth thing is that, are you adapting the techniques we've taught you? Because when people adapt our techniques, that means that they've matured as students. They're not just dependent on their coach, but they're making changes to what their coach has taught them. While they're communicating, are they bringing energy to the session? Are they a positive force? Because, you know, I love talking to candidates who make jokes and laugh and so on. I really enjoy that. I must be honest with you, I look forward to candidates who do those things, who, who lighten the mood. Uh, because as a coach, remember, I'm on the phone 12 to 15 hours a day. That is my life. I'm always on the phone. If mobile phones and Skype causes brain cancer, I'm going to die at a young age, right? So if I'm going to die at a young age, I'm going to die at least happy. And it's important that candidates bring energy to the session because... If I bring energy to the session, 
a candidate is not going to know how to bring energy to a session. When you face a negative interviewer, someone who's dour and sour and so on, you're not going to be able to change the mood. You want to practice doing that. And the si sixth thing we look at under communication is urgency. Basically, urgency says, do you know how much time you've taken to do the case? It doesn't mean you speed. It means you're aware, you're accountable. right? So that's the first thing we look at under your midpoint feedback. The second thing we look at is all the estimation and math and logic cases, you know, demand side, supply side. Uh, top-down, bottom-up, closed space, open space cases, and so on. I won't go into the mechanics and specifics. We've covered that earlier. Brainstorming, again. Do you know the technique? Are you able to communicate? The third thing is brainstorming that will give feedback. And most importantly, under brainstorming and estimation, we're looking to see whether you can brainstorm without having the need to write down the answer before. And there are many candidates who will give them a brainstorming estimation question. They'll need to take five minutes to write out their full answer, and then they can only read out their answer to me. When candidates are doing that, it shows they negatively on them because it means they cannot think and speak at the same time, right? The fourth area we look at is full cases, you know, and there's a lot of things we can cover under full cases, you know, from communication, structuring, um, the kind of tone and demeanor you have with the interviewer. Some candidates want to do video coaching with us, so then we'll turn on the video and say, okay, how are you performing? Sometimes we will videotape them and we'll, you know, give them feedback and we'll load up their videos and say, you've got to watch this segment because I think you did this badly or this segment because you think because we think you did this well. And we don't we don't video screen candidates because it leads to profiling. You know, we don't want to see what a candidate looks like before we've actually spoken to them. We want to speak to them first, judge them on their content, and then see what they look like because then it, it doesn't impact what we think of them. And if you think that profiling doesn't affect human beings, it's a human trait to judge people based on what you know about them. It's not a bad thing to profile, but the process of profiling leads to erroneous decisions. So to avoid that, we don't know what candidates look like when they come to our screening column and they start the training with us. We usually see what they look like from session six onwards. And by that stage, we ju we, we, we're judging them on their content only, but not, and not what they look like or their mannerisms and so on. And, and you know, we can discuss anything in, in the fourth area of feedback, which we give, which is full case. Just to recap, first area of feedback is communication. Second area, estimation. Third area, brainstorming. Fourth area, full cases. Now, under the fourth area, it's, it's a wide, wide mix of things. Communication, body language. Um, you know, there's so many different types of cases we can give feedback on. We can, you know, focus on why you're unable to brainstorm within full cases, why you are missing certain obvious ways of communicating with the interviewer, why you're not able to zoom in on the clues the interviewer is given, why you are solving cases by yourself and ignoring the information given from the interviewer. It's such a big area that I cannot list everything. It's going to be unique to the person, right? The last two areas we give feedback on is fit and image. We do spend a lot of time on fit and image. And we, we fit and image is very important. I can deduce your fit style if you've never done a fit question. We can always say but fit is not important. Fit is important and I insist it's important because we can deduce your fit capabilities not even if you don't answer a fit question. When you do a full case with me, I'm assessing you on fit as well, right? You don't think I'm just assessing you, assessing you on your case skills? Hell no. I'm thinking there, hey, you know what? If I put this guy in front of a client, is he going to convey confidence, calmness? That's fit as well. Fit is not just your personal experiences. No, fit is communication and the image you project. And finally, what I call pivoting. Pivoting refers to two things here. Pivoting refers to whether you can adapt between the different style of cases. I want to be see that you can use the decision tree approach. I can want to see you can use hypotheses. I want to see you can use the McKinsey inference approach where no frameworks can ever solve the case. And I want to see you can easily pivot and rotate across that, right? 
Related to pivoting, I also want to see that you can pivot between focusing on the hard stuff in your cases and networking. There are candidates who really, really mess up their networking. I mean, we've had candidates who will give them advice on networking for three months. They won't do anything about it. And then they will spam an office by sending 17 emails to like 12 partners in one office in one day. That basically kills their chances. Now, all of the time we make available to candidates beyond the 12 hours is completely discretionary. It is at our judgment call, right, whether we make the time available. If we feel candidates are either unable to use the information, not using it well, or are bad candidates, there are sometimes candidates who are not, you know, um, uh, effective, we just won't make the time available. We use the midpoint decision to see how much discretionary time we'll award candidates as well. You have to be a good client, and a good client is not just someone who's trying their best. You actually have to be improving. You have to be following the guidelines we set and making progress, right? And and candidates always say they want more time. It's it's a question of whether you deserve the time at the end of the day. And there are so many candidates we have, we have to make a judgment call. It's not something we can award to everyone. So the midpoint decision, very, very important, a very, very pivotal way around what we teach, right? So once the midpoint decision is over, we make another very important decision. Now, Firms Consulting has a group of ex very senior partners, former heads of strategy at McKinsey, BCG, Bain, heads of operations, worldwide heads of operations, working with us as well. Now, the mentors like Kevin Quine, that's one of them, is the one guy we've made publicly available on our site. and We've released his details publicly. Uh, for, for confidentiality reasons, we don't release the other names of our mentors, right? Some of them work as, you know, executives at um, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, so we don't disclose those details. If you do very well at your midpoint, we will award you a um, mentor like Kevin Coyne to guide you as well. Now, your mentor will be separate from your coach. The time doesn't come out from the 12 hours that you have that's traditional time you don't pay for it we will we cover the cost of all of this so it's it's a merit-based decision right it's not as if everyone gets access to our mentors no we don't allow that the mentors are a cherry on the top if you are exceptional you follow the rules you do everything we ask you to do you're a good student and we think you can go on and change the world and we think you are worthy of having a mentor we'll assign a mentor to you your coach and your mentor will work together to make sure that there's continuity in your mentoring. So the coach will give a lot of feedback to your mentor, hand over your file to your mentor, and make sure that your mentor is then going to drive your training as well. And mentoring can be anything. It can be doing cases with you. It can be spending the whole day just talking you through a strategy to get your interview, sort of your application into the right people, how you can get access to certain people who will open doors for you at McKinsey or BCG. The point is it's completely open-ended, right? The mentorship is, is a very powerful tool. People who've used the mentorship program have only the best things to say about the program, right? Now, you can listen to some of the mentoring recordings. Some of the candidates who've been through mentoring have allowed us to make those recordings available. And, um, you know, the mentors have approved that as well, so no problems there. And you can listen to that. Some, you know, you see the mentors are very, very nice. I mean, the point is they're there to help you to guide you. You have a former worldwide head of strategy of McKinsey, BCG, or Bain guiding your career. There is no greater advantage that you can have anywhere in the world for management consulting. It is impossible to replicate that strategy, right? The way mentoring works is that it's a merit system. You're awarded one mentoring uh, 
um, a session. If you do well and the mentor likes you and thinks you're a good candidate and you're prepared, you get another mentoring session. Second mentoring session, you're a good candidate, you're prepared, the mentor continues to think you have potential, you'll get a third session. Some of these sessions last until 10 sessions with your mentor. So you're basically doubling up your training time with firms consulting. On the other hand, if you if you come in underprepared and the mentor doesn't think you actually thought this through, or I listen to the recordings and I don't think you've thought it through because I also speak to the mentor as well, or the other coach will speak to the mentor, we'll decide not to progress this. So we'll decide that you'll only have one mentoring session, right? It's not a, it's not a question of buying more time with the mentors. We don't allow that, and frankly, it's too expensive, right? So you can't buy more time with the mentors. It's a completely merit-based decision. And that's the thing about firms consulting. You can never buy access to anything we do. It's all about merit. You need to earn the right to be there, right? Mentoring, very it's, a, it's an outstanding program with the greatest minds in management consulting today, right? Now, sessions 7 to 12 are completely dependent upon your development areas, whether that's analyzing graphics, whether it's focusing on BTO cases, whether you're struggling to communicate, that's where we'll focus on it. The only difference is session 11 or 12. These are the fit or personal experience interview sessions. It can either be session 11 or session 12, or sometimes we split it over both to give people time to you know, um, use the advice we give them in session 11. Now, the key thing about fit is fit preparation is actually very difficult to do. You don't want to be doing your FIT preparation in session 10. You want to be doing it in session 2 and 3 because it takes that much time to prepare. So we have best practice answers, obviously, in the case interview library or the consulting offer file side. So you can watch that and see how you prepare for it. The big thing about FIT is it's not about... Is it, two mistakes candidates make with FIT. The first one is they start memorizing their answers. Do not memorize your answers. If you memorize your answers and you ask a question that you have not prepared for, you're not trained to answer that question. The first thing is practice an approach to answer foot questions so that when you ask a question to which you are not completely prepared you can give a goody good answer. Don't just memorize answers and think that's gonna win the day. It won't. In two seconds I can see if you memorize the answer and that's not an exaggeration, right? The second point actually maybe there's three important points. This will be the second one. Is McKinsey is never going to ask you, tell me about a leadership story, tell me about a time you led a team or whatever. They're going to ask you to tell them about any story. But they're going to expect that if you were a natural born leader who got things done, your stories would talk about leadership, where you ha could influence a team of people to overcome a big initiative and achieve a great result. So when McKinsey and BCG ask you questions during FIT, even if they don't ask you about leadership, your stories must have that naturally built in. The third one, this is especially true for McKinsey, not for Bain and BCG. In McKinsey, a lot of candidates get so happy when they deliver this great answer. What they don't realize is the part that counts for fit is the interrogation that follows after the answer. McKinsey will ask you something like, okay, what day did you have this discussion with your boss in the story? Why did you choose Friday? Why didn't you choose Thursday? Why did you pick to have the meeting outside the office? Why not in the office? Why did you let your boss pay for coffee? What is the boss's perception, what does the look on their face when you told them this? How did you respond? Now, the cross-examination is what gets people in fit. Right? It doesn't happen in every case, but it happens in the majority of cases. So when you prepare for fit, if you are a candidate in this program and you come to session 10 and you say, oh, Michael said we're going to do fit in session 11 and 12, now let me start preparing for it, you're going to fail fit, you're not going to be ready 
for that. I always tell candidates that you must prepare for fit in session one, session two, and slowly start developing it up. Run your thinking by me through each of the sessions. I can tell you you're doing the right things. But if you do fit at the end, you are completely dead. It is too late to prepare for fit. You are never going to be ready on time. So you have to keep them in the back of, the head, of your head as you go through things. Now, there's obviously quite a long podcast talking you through what happens in each of the training programs, and it's very comprehensive, right? I do believe that we have... You know, well, firstly, you have ex-partners training you, so we know that what we are doing is exactly what the consulting firms are looking for. But I think, secondly, we do offer a very comprehensive approach beyond what the consulting firms are looking for. And the fact that we've got all these senior partners, you know, as and principals of, of McKinsey and BCG running things means that we will always have the best ideas that are brought forward. So think about this carefully when you want to sign up for the program because it is very comprehensive. We do put a lot of pressure on candidates to get the best results and you need to be aware of that and ready for that.